Well, you're all still here. I imagine for some of you, this time has gone like that. And for others, maybe you feel like you've been here a month. But in any event, we're here. And I, I, I too want to honor you for your, the wholesomeness of your efforts these days. The Irish-born Canadian poet Henry Drummond said this, you'll find as you look back upon your life that the moments when you really lived are the moments when you have done things in the spirit of love. That the moments when you really lived are the moments when you have done things in the spirit of love. So tonight I want to talk about love as a vehicle for liberation. Because love and awakening are not separate. And love's available to everybody, to each, and each, each one of you right now. And you don't have to fabricate it. You don't have to fabricate it from scratch. It's already here. And it's actually not dependent on someone loving you. And there are ways that it can be enhanced. So tonight we're going to explore love a little bit, as we have for the last couple of days. <clears throat> recently, uh, recently I went for a run in the snow. Uh, in Virginia, it's a rare event when it snows, but I love to run in the snow. There's something magical about it, and it's also really nice on these old joints. You know, it has that, that nice cushioning effect. So it was about a week and a half ago, and we had, and the conditions were perfect. There was like four inches of nice powder. So I got out there, and I was very excited. Uh, I find it just a magical experience, actually. So I, you know, I'm watching the snow come down. I get out there, I'm all excited. Start running along, and the mind starts churning away. Oh, this looks like a big snowfall. I'm going to lose power. You know, I've got to get more wood in. And then the mind jumps to, well, do I have enough buckets of water to flush the toilets? You know, so, and, and then the mind jumps to, oh, you know, maybe I better, you know, do some of this computer work. I'm going to lose my, I'm going to lose electricity. I need to get back. And oh, and then the mind jumps to, I, I need to file. You know, what, you know, I have a feeling there's some things that are in the bottom of a pile somewhere that are going to cause me trouble. If I, and then the mind jumps to, my emails, you know, when am I going to get to these emails and on and on. And then the mind jumps to, you know, are the Red Sox going to give long-term contracts to Victor Martinez and Josh Beckett? And should they? And then it jumps to how powerful the Yankees may or may not be. And it's blah, 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 blah. So there I was in one of the most, in the midst of one of the most beautiful scenes that you could imagine. I live about 10 miles from the southern end of Shenandoah National Park, 
in Virginia. And there's these rolling hills, and it's, not many people live out there. It's really beautiful. There's these terrific vistas, and I run on these dirt roads. So there I am. And the body was cooperating. It doesn't cooperate all the time, but it was cooperating that day. And the endorphins were starting to flood through. But the sad part was, for those moments, I wasn't even there. I was someplace else. I was every place else. I was not inhabiting my life in that moment. So a switch goes off in the mind. If you practice enough and long enough, the switch goes off in the mind to bring you back eventually. And the hope being that you're brought back sooner and sooner from being out of your life. So then I'm back in. Oh, you know, and there's like this, um, it's, it's almost like a solemn quiet of the snowfall. As, as you're in it. It's like the, the snow absorbs all the sound. There's just the, you can hear the snow hitting, hitting snow, this very kind of background. And then, there's, then there was just the kind of shh of my feet as they landed in the snow. And then the only other thing really was my breathing, kind of rhythmic, like a, almost like a metronome. And it would increase as I go up the hill and decrease as I, as I go down the hill. Um, I mean, and then I was in the experience. The snowflakes, feeling them, you know, how they land on your face and they're solid and then they turn to a liquid and they run. Uh, And feeling the legs. Running in snow is different than, you know, on regular terrain. And it's different than sand. There's that little bit of a slide with each step. Different muscles are working. You know, it was, uh, there was a lot to look at. So exploring that experience both internally and externally. Noticing what was going on in my environment, the, the, the changing uh, quality of the snowflakes from larger to smaller, to almost a whiteout situation, to kind of opening up and being able to see some distance. So I'm running along and, and there's also noticing this kind of feeling of exhilaration and joy beginning to kind of pervade the body, feeling a lot like a kid again, and then feeling, uh, feeling this kind of, this real stronger and stronger connectedness with nature, feeling really held in it, uh, and feeling the heart open wider and wider and more, more full. I was in love. I mean, I was, I, I was in love in that moment. And maybe I was love. Maybe that's what it was. Have you noticed that when you're lost in thought, it doesn't leave much room for other things? When your mind is spinning, grinding, planning, worrying, fantasizing, rehashing this or that, the whole phenomenological field gets filled up with this. And a mind that's filled like that doesn't get to feel the beautiful, the beautiful emotions very much. There's just not a lot of room at the end 
all the rooms are filled with chatter. But luckily, that doesn't have to be. This practice that you do, this mindfulness practice, that slowly trains the mind to spend more and more time in the present experience, that allows for room, for a little spaciousness, for these other experiences to bubble up into consciousness. And some of them can be quite pleasant. They're very healthy, they're restorative. It's the fruit of a little bit of mind and heart training. And that's what you've been engaged in this, this weekend. And there's many ways to look at a spiritual practice, many facets to kind of look into what's going on. And one of them might be that, uh, that a challenge of spiritual practice is that um, can you find ways uh, to lose interest in, in thinking? You know, can you become just even a little less interested in thinking so that you can fall into your life more directly? And when you do that, there's room for these different, these deeper experiences to bubble up into consciousness. Deeper processes like joy, love, compassion, peace. Now, if you track your thoughts, really, how much of them, you know, how many of them are worth anything? Now, come on. Uh, now, some of you, I'm, I know, I think wonderfully wise things all the time. Uh, but that hasn't been my personal experience. You know, when I look at my thoughts, um, most of them aren't very interesting. And there's a whole portion of them that are a complete dreck. <laughs> you know. So what if you could lose some interest in these thoughts? What would that be like? If you could just rest a tad more in the present, well, I can tell you it will be transformative. I could also go on record to say I would guarantee it will be transformative. Mentally, physically, spiritually, transformative. And nowadays, all the research that, that's coming out backs that up. So if you can lose just a little interest, just a little of that belief you have in your thoughts, it can become a very firm stepping stone to liberation. Transformation for most of us doesn't happen magically. A little patience is required a little wise intention is required. Appropriate effort is required, not striving. That's a whole nother conversation. But appropriate effort is required. Because you see, we've been gifted with this marvelous brain that is wired for survival. And it has been wildly successful. There are 6.5 billion of us. That's success. This gray matter has been tremendously successful. 
But what the mind is wired to do is to continually scan the environment and plan for the things that we need or want, um, to scan for greater comfort, to scan for threat. So it's moving, moving, moving all the time. And, and it does that for survival's sake. It's wired in there. It's a, it's a beautiful function, actually. We're processing data by the boatload. So this mind is oriented for survival. But it may not be so organically oriented for compose, for peace. Or is it? It's a question. Living with a completely untrained mind is like living with an over-caffeinated squirrel in your head. <laughs> it's just bouncing all over the place. Now, if you take that survival-oriented, over-caffeinated squirrel mind, and you place it in a culture like we have, where everything is supposed to go faster and faster, uh, you know, all the new media options that are available, you know, one year after the next, it's not even, it doesn't even take a year now, it's like every few months, there's a new gadget that, uh, that accelerates the volume and amount of communication available to us. And the subtext of that, with all this new communication equipment, the expectations on us increase and increase and increase. You know, there are benefits to these things. They're wonderful, and there's a cost. You know, some of you may actually remember when you used to take a pen and write things on a piece of paper and put it in a mailbox and send it away, and a couple weeks later, you'd get a response, and you'd feel, hey, that's pretty good, you know? But now we each know there are people out there and we're in communication with them that if we don't answer their text or their email within an hour, they're, they're gonna be anxious and insulted. You know, that's, that's where it's all headed. But you've come here this weekend because something inside you, some kind of wise understanding, some wise guidance has, has guided you um, to explore the possibility of cultivating a life that's different than that, different than a life that's accelerating and accelerating. And so you're, you're lucky enough to have stumbled onto a path, a proven path, and a path that leads away from frenzy. It truly does. It's a very radical path. It's subversive also. That's another discussion, but it's a very subversive path. Learning to turn directly toward your experience with as much kindness and patience as you can and acceptance as you can muster, doing that over and over, over and over until your organism begins to get it, get it until falling directly into your experience becomes more of the default mode in your life. 
until your senses become really awake and alive. When you get some traction in that, in this practice, room does open up, spaciousness does open up, so that other possibilities have a chance. Those other possibilities that are always present, but are obscured. Possibilities that are veiled over, veiled by the energies of restlessness, energies of fear, energies of lethargy, doubt, wanting. You know, classically, these veils are called hindrances. And, and they, the Pali word for hindrance is nivarana, which literally means covering. These energies are covering what is. We've been speaking about it a lot this weekend. And since antiquity, since antiquity, people have argued whether the basic human nature is one of kindness or of self-centeredness and egotism. You know, that's been a discussion for a long time. And unfortunately, what seems to be happening today is that, um, at least in the larger culture, that there's a sense that one side of this argument has swept the board, and it's the negative side. It's not that people have stopped being kind, but in a way, kindness has been under assault. And what it's saying is that many people have stopped thinking that, that people at their, at their core are kind. Now, nowadays, there's this, a, a deep suspicion that the basic human character is um, is this kind of dark constellation. There's a kind of rough cynicism uh, as to what the human psyche is made of. And that perspective isn't new by any means. And you can go back in history and look at different philosophers. And Thomas Hobbes was uh, riding that horse uh, really hard in the, in the 1600s in his, in his book, The Leviathan. And, 1651, he, Thomas Hobbes says this. He says, Christian kindness is a psychological absurdity. Men are selfish beasts who care for nothing but their own well-being. Human existence is a war of all against all. A war of all against all. Ouch. I mean, is that our fate? That's really grim. What Hobbes and others do is they'll pick out certain examples of characteristics or, or vices like selfishness and aggression, and they'll transform them into psychobiological facts. And you hear this, you hear the mutterings of this each time something happens. You know, like after the credit swap derivative banking scam or the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme were uncovered. Um, you know, you'll, you'll hear the response being, well, you know, well, what do you expect? That's human nature. You know, people will grab for anything they can get. So 
the image of the deep nature of humanity that's calling favor right now in the world uh, is pointing to a creature that's utterly lacking in kindness, compassion, or generosity. But this perspective always hasn't always been dominant. You know, it wasn't always this way. The Roman philosopher, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, he, he said this, he said humanity's, uh, he called kindness humanity's deepest delight. Humanity's greatest delight. The ancient Greeks had words for this love of humanity, philanthropia, agape. The early Christians had a term for this universal love and kindness, caritas. The recent book that I found, I found interesting, uh, Rebecca Solnit's book, I don't know if anybody's come across it yet, but the name of it is A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. And it records the historical and firsthand accounts of uh, stories of human behavior in times of crisis. And she takes a look at uh, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, the 1917 great explosion up in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, 1985 earthquake in Mexico City, 9-11, Katrina, maybe there's one or two others. And for each one, she documents uh, the spontaneous arising of communities of solidarity. And these communities all were marked by altruism, marked by the saving acts of compassionate bravery. And to be fair, she also acknowledges uh, you know, some lesser acts, but they were always in the minority in these situations. And throughout the book, she drives home, she drives home the point, the point that, that our beliefs about each other, our beliefs about each other's fundamental nature affects our actions. She says this, how you behave depends on whether you think your neighbors or fellow citizens are a greater threat than the havoc wrought by a disaster or a greater good than the property in houses and stores around you. Often the worst behavior in the wake of a calamity is on the part of those who believe that others will behave savagely and that they themselves are taking defensive measures against barbarism. From earthquake shattered San Francisco in 1906 to flooded New Orleans in 2005, innocents have been killed by people who believed or asserted that their actions that, that their victims were the criminals and that they themselves were the protectors of the shaken order. Belief systems really matter. Her thesis in this book in, is that in the midst of these sometimes horrifying disasters, we frequently get offered a glimpse of, a, of utopia of a community in paradise. And that's very paradoxical when you think about it, very strange to actually get a glimpse of utopia in the midst of 
hell in some situations. But those sensibilities can, can rise out of chaos. When the ordinary social order gets suspended, and she says this, disaster doesn't sort us out by preferences. It drags us into emergencies that require we act and act altruistically, bravely, and with initiative in order to survive or to save the neighbors. No matter how we vote or what we do for a living, the positive emotions that arise in these uncompromising circumstances demonstrate that social ties and meaningful work are deeply desired, readily improvised, and intensely rewarding. We need ties, but they, along with purposefulness, immediacy, and agency, also give us joy. The startling, sharp joy I found in accounts of disaster survivors. These accounts demonstrate that the citizens any paradise would need, the citizens any paradise would need, the people who are brave enough, resourceful enough, and generous enough already exist. The possibility of paradise hovers on the cusp of coming into being, so much so that it takes powerful forces to keep such a paradise at bay. Right on. <laughs> if paradise now arises in hell, it's because in the suspension of the usual order and the failure of most systems, we are free to live and act another way. This social desire and social possibility go against the grain of the dominant stories of recent decades. One of the stories she tells is uh, about, or she gets the, the comments of Dorothy Day. Now she survived the 1906 uh, earthquake. And at the time, uh, well, she, she grew up and she founded the Catholic Worker and she was involved in a lot of charitable work in her life. She was just a little girl living in Oakland with her mother at the time when the quake struck. And the experiences after the quake really informed and directed her life towards a life of service. And she had this to say. She said, what I, what I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindliness of, every word, of everyone afterward. Boats were continually arriving in Oakland from across the bay in San Francisco. They were filled with dazed, frightened, homeless survivors. Mother and all our neighbors were busy from morning to night, continually cooking meals. They gave away every extra garment they possessed. And she goes on to say, while the crisis lasted, people loved each other. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. Benjamin Disraeli says, we are all born for love. It is the principle of existence and its only end. Turning our thoughts to Haiti for a minute. You know, Haiti's experienced, they don't really know, 200,000, 250,000 deaths, a million, million and a half people homeless. 
And even there, in that situation, there has been light. There has been light amidst that unspeakable horror. That light, that potential, can be found again in the response, both in the response of the Haitians and of the world community. The survivors, they demonstrate in almost all cases great care and patience with each other. They worked together to save what lives could be saved. They organized quickly. They they willingly shared what resources they had, and they buried their dead together. And as we sit here this weekend, they continue to preserve their humanity and dignity shoulder to shoulder, working as best they can with what they have. And the world community responded. It wasn't perfect, a little disorganized, but it was wholehearted. The definition I most like of compassion is that compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to another suffering or to one's own suffering. And that was truly demonstrated in Haiti by the vast majority of people. The response really was kind and caring. And of course, there's always some strange comments, you know, Reverend Robertson went off the rails again and other people had things to say and the media jumped on any little bit of looting or selfish behavior they could find. But by and large, the vast, vast majority of, of action uh, was very compassionate. It continues to be. So I, I look at Haiti as, as one of those crunch times for humanity. How will we respond? And so far, I think, I think we're doing okay. You know, there's a lot more to do. Most of you have had an experience of one kind or another of people coming together in, in moments of, of crisis. Um, he's back. And uh, I think, I guess it was about a year ago in the spring, maybe. I was sitting in my house and look and in my office and I'm looking out over the mountains and it's a very windy day and all kinds of warnings about the wind. It was dry and it was windy. Uh, it was spring, still a little cool, but dry and windy. And I started noticing that over the, over the house coming in front of me from the other direction is this white smoke. I didn't have the fireplace on. So I'm saying, oh, this is, you know, the, the, immediately the, the pulse comes up a little bit. And so I look, look, to the, look out the other side of the house and it's just smoke billowing towards the house. So I run outside, run across um, uh, the front yard. Uh, I could barely see anything and it was really thick and kind of choking. Get out to the road and I see this red glare from across the street and I feel the heat. So everything across the field across the way is on fire and there are trees on the edge of the field and they're on fire. And so, oh my gosh. Because if it jumps the road, there are thousands and thousands of acres of forested land, a few houses, 
but it would all go. And the wind was really blowing. There were 60 mile an hour winds that day, swirling in all different directions. So I run and I'm stamping things out and I run and get a shovel and uh, my wife comes running out and she said, should we make a run for it? You know, and I say, no, get the hose, get the hose. So she goes, he gets the hose, hooks it up, pulls it up, no water. The electricity had gone out, you know, just in that little bit of time. So we're out there running back and forth, trying to keep the fire line from jumping the road. So I'm running down, I'm in front of a neighbor's property and choking and got my shirt over my head as best I can. And I'm looking at the little fires, putting them out. And next thing you know, there's this neighbor and we're working together and he's out there too and he's coughing and our eyes meet. And he's a neighbor who doesn't like me. <laughs> he doesn't like me at all. I've got these dogs that are, they're, they like to express themselves a lot. <laughs> and it's out in the country and I kind of feel, look, we were here first, the dog, you know, they moved in. So, but I always apologize. He calls up and says, why don't you have your dog, you know. I say, oh gee, oh, I'm sorry, I'm trying, you know. And I do try, but I don't want the dogs to be penned up in the house. So, you know, so there we are working shoulder to shoulder. And then this third guy appears. And he's, he's my other neighbor on the other side. And his political belief system and my political belief system are in different solar systems. But there we are, huffing and puffing, coughing, gagging, you know, running from one of our property lines to the other, doing everything we can. And eventually the fire department got there. And they were, that was the day they actually had to call out the National Guard. There were so many fires. Um, uh, the wind had knocked down a branch, hit a wire, fell in the field across the, across the road, burnt, burned it all up. But our relationships have all changed now. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting and it's, and it's beautiful. But look what it took, you know. I also think back to when I used to work on the rescue squad. And I would work Friday and Saturday nights were my shift to get all the action on Friday and Saturday nights. And out in the countryside, we're really pretty far away from the hospital. So there was a lot to do and, and manage. But almost every occasion, if there was a wreck, didn't matter, what their, didn't matter what the weather was, people would stop their cars. It could be pouring or sleeting, and we're trying to do something. And there'd be somebody there, hey, how can I help? What can I do? You want me to direct traffic? Can I help you with this? Can, you know, what do you need? And I just kind of, and I remember looking at those people and thinking, my gosh, isn't that beautiful? But that's, it's there. People weren't even thinking. It was like, ah, there's a problem. I'm going to help. So I've articulated stories kind of heading in, in one direction. The view we have of our nature matters. It really does matter. If we incline the mind towards a certain view of our nature, it supports love, it supports joy, it supports generosity. And if we incline the mind in a different direction, it supports other things. So in these examples that I, that I gave, um, causes and conditions came about that, that shook people, shook them out of their habituated processes their protective stances, 
and landed them in their deeper potential. It's the only way I can describe it. They shook up, fell out, landed in deeper potential. And you don't have to wait for disaster to land in your deeper potential. And that's what's so cool about this practice that we do. That you can cultivate a life if you have enough patience and staying power with this practice. You can cultivate a life that has you living more and more from those places, those utopian places. There's a professor at Berkeley, uh, Dasher Keltner, and he does a lot of work with Paul Ekman, who, who co-authored a book with the Dalai Lama called Emotional Awareness. And uh, they're, they're just two researchers, and they've got other people that they work with, but, but among many researchers that are re-looking at just what is human nature. And he sums up some of the current research, his and other people's, with a very brief statement. He says, recent advances in DNA measurement in archaeology and in the study of our primate relatives are yielding striking new insights into the history of humanity. Embedded in these discoveries is an answer to the question of where our capacity for goodness comes from. Survival of the kindness looks like it may be just as fitting a description of our origins as survival of the fittest. I think that's pretty cool. He and his colleagues are developing this thing and they talk about what they call Ren science. I don't know if anybody of you heard of that. Ren is spelled J-E-N. And it's the central idea to, in Confucius's thinking. And it refers to a complex mixture of kindness, humanity, and respect that people show for one another in relationship. It's the, it's the um, human-heartedness, goodness, benevolence, person-to-personness that, that makes us fairly distinctive in the animal world. There are other animals that have these characteristics, probably, we think, but it really makes us distinctive. Confucius held that this concept of, of Ren is dearer than life itself. He said that a person will sacrifice their life to preserve Ren. And conversely, it's that sensibility uh, of humanness that makes life worth living. It's the sensibility to the dignity of a human life. the sensibility of the, of the feeling towards others and of self-respect for ourselves. This, this ren is felt or known in, in moments where, where you, you do something that brings out the goodness or another or, or you feel it in yourself. When you extend yourself in some generous way, you know, if you were to look as you're, even if you're holding a door open for somebody, something really simple. If you were to look, what's the constellation of emotions felt in that moment? 
that's what these scientists might call Ren and Confucius might call Ren. It's the awakened heart of basic goodness that we talk about in Buddhism. You'll find it in all the religions. It's the natural great perfected heart. Ren's the manifestation of these deep processes, these beautiful emotions. These emotions that are just waiting to be discovered just underneath these veils of covering energy. Have any of you read any William James? You know, sometime it's probably been assigned to you. Um, but if you read some of his stuff, he sounds like a yoga teacher. And this was like 120 years ago. Because he talked about the primary role of the body in, in our emotional life. He believed that every subjective state that we have, and that's from the rage we feel sometimes when some politician does something horrific. That, you know that political rage? You ever feel that? From, from that to all the way to the spiritual rapture that we sometimes get. Or the warm contentment you might feel if you, you know, if you encounter a puppy or if you hear a group of children playing. He said that all of those experiences get registered in the body. He called them bodily reverberations. And that was 110, 120 years ago. Bodily reverberations. And it seemed a little far-fetched then. People didn't pay him much mind. They just thought he was doped up, doped up on something, which he occasionally was. Um, but the, some of the latest studies, the cross-cultural studies uh, uh, around looking at the autonomic nervous system are beginning to tell the same story. Studies, they got some really cool studies ongoing right now that are looking into things like goosebumps. Well, what's this deal with goosebumps? You know, they happen. We get touched by something and we have this bodily reaction, kind of fizzy. You know, or when tears well up. Even during this talk, I've had tears well up a, a few times just thinking about certain things here. You know, when our face gets flushed. The, the chest kind of swells when we're stirred deeply by something. All these studies are beginning to reveal that, that the higher human sentiments, the most, the highest of the high human sentiments, like love and kindness, compassion, empathy, that sense of awe, are viscerally embodied in us. that our very capacity for goodness is hardwired into the body. A story. A little girl was ill in the hospital with a rare blood disorder and was badly in need of a blood donor, but a match was not easily found. As a last resort, her six-year-old brother was checked as a match and much to everyone's relief, he was. Both his mother and doctor sat the little boy down and explained how they would like his blood to help his sister so she would not die. The little boy waited a few, a few moments and then asked if he could think about it. 
I mean, that, that wasn't the response they, they wanted or expected. So the following day, the little boy sat down in front of the doctor uh, with his mother, and he said that he agreed to give his sister what she needed. So the hospital staff moved quickly because she was fading, and they needed to do this quickly. And for the little boy's understanding of what was happening, they just pulled a bed next to her, and they were performing the transfusion right, right there in the, same, in the same room. So rather quickly, the color began to change in the sister, and everyone was you know, thrilled with, with, with the outcome. And the little boy quietly then asked the doctor, how long will it be before I die? In his mind, he thought by giving his blood, he was giving his life. That's what blood is. He needed a little time to think about it. <laughs> but look, look where he came out. So is there an inherent goodness? Is that just another anecdotal story? Is that a wide-scale representation? So today's science is dovetailing with the practice that, that you do. It's a practice where you're not in any way constructing from scratch these noble capacities. You don't need to. You're only coming home to what is. And these famous lines from T.S. Eliot, most of you have heard them. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to, be, will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. One of my favorite depictions of this practice um, is from Shanul, the 12th century Korean Zen patriarch. It's a conceptual frame that I like and that has helped me, and I like to share it during retreats. And it is very similar to what we've, we've been um, encouraging uh, these few days. Chanel taught his students to just start where you are, and it didn't matter. Whatever was going on in the heart, mind, body, could be anxiety, hatred, lust, fear, whatever it was, that was just fine. You just start there. Whatever it was up, whatever the weather was, just allow it to be. Receive the emotions, the sensations of the body, Embrace them kindly, not interfering as best that you're able, not resisting. Because whatever you start with and stay with, with enough patience, uh, will change. It'll change because everything in nature changes. There's nothing outside that law of nature. Or maybe that's a challenge. Go find something that's permanent. But everything, everything changes. So everything 
that rises will eventually dissolve under patient equanimity. Now, let me give an, let me give an illustration of, of tracing back the radiance that Chanul talks about, this process. We'll use planning as an example. I, my mind tends to go there. Anybody else plan much? Anybody not plan? I want to meet you. All right, so when I notice that I'm engaged in planning, the first thing, of course, is the recognition. Okay, this is planning. And then withdrawing the attention from the object of planning, turning it on the body, noticing what's going on. And for me, a lot of times, uh, not all the time, but a lot of times there's a little anxiety behind the planning. So exploring that in the body, where, where is it felt? What does it feel like? What's the intensity of it? What's the energy of the like? Is it moving? Is it stationary? Does it feel solid? You know, what is it? Just bringing a kindly presence to it, not trying to change it, not trying to make it something else or make it go away. And it'll often change, morph into something else, kind of dissolve that and something else appears. And, and sometimes it's a, it's a deeper, more pronounced fear it's underneath the lighter anxiety. So can I be with that? You know, can I be with that with some, some level of uh, kindness, some equanimity? Can I say yes to fear? Can I accept it and not try to cover it over or push it away? So then staying with it, staying with it. It may then even open it to something more intense. There's a kind of fear that sometimes I notice. I, I, the only thing I can call it is like primal fear. It's like right down there, as deep as it gets, and it's about survival. Um, sometimes I used to feel that way about public speaking. Um, so staying with that, staying with that, the same challenge is there. But after a while, if there's enough patience and enough time given and, 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 and the level of equanimity is enough, it opens. Opens, opens to what? It opens into a, a spacious, infinite, clear peace. infused with a loving sensibility. It's a radiance. Chanul's process of tracing back the radiance, starting where we are. So it's pretty simple, this practice. You can call it tracing back the radiance, you can call it rain. We stay as best that we are able with what comes up, with as much patience as we can muster. And we do it with the next set of emotions that appears, and the next set, and the next set. And at some point, revealed to us is this luminous, radiant heart-mind. And it's the heart-mind of radiance that's always been there. It's as William Blake said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, 
everything would appear as it is, infinite. So over time, your confidence will develop to, to trace back the radiance. The organism will, will begin to kind of sense and smell its way back to the barn in a way. You'll get more comfortable in falling back into, into these deeper processes. And sometimes the clouds will lift immediately upon just turning the mind back on the experience. Whoosh, it opens. And other times the clouds are so dense, the energy is so powerful, it just ain't going to happen that day. And that's just the way it is. And tomorrow, no big deal. Tomorrow's another day, another opportunity to be with what is. Slowly but surely, as the wandering monk Ryokan uh, said, like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I too quietly turn clear and transparent. Like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I too quietly turn clear and transparent. You're all these little streams kind of moving through the rocks, becoming purified. So in addition to tracing back the radiance like this, utilizing rain, which is our basic Vipassana approach, remember in Vipassana, we're not cultivating anything intentionally. Vipassana is a very simple path of seeing clearly what is with an, added new, with an attitude of, of kindness and acceptance. In addition, you can also cultivate these, these deeper, beautiful emotions. You can enhance them, you can polish them up, they're already there, uh, by doing various practices. And over the last two days, uh, Tara and Hugh have led you in loving kindness practice. And we hope that you've benefited from it. In the Pali Canon, which are made up of the discourses of the Buddha. There's several, several discourses where the, where the Buddha talks about what he, what he calls the path to the company of Brahma. Brahma meaning God or the, or the awakened heart mind or just awakening. And he says this, what is the path to the company of Brahma? Here a bhikkhu, a bhikkhu meaning a monk or practitioner, here a bhikkhu abides pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness. Likewise the second quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness. Likewise a third, likewise a fourth. Above, below, around and everywhere and to all and to himself. He abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, a mind abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. When the deliverance of a mind by loving kindness is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeter could make himself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, so too, when the deliverance of mind by loving kindness is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. This is the path to the company of Brahma. 
No limiting action remains there. None persists there. He's talking about love and kindness and support of liberation, of awakening. And as you explore love and kindness, there's sometimes this sense of not only infusing yourself with love and kindness, but infusing everything with it. Now, whether that's actually true or not, who knows? But there's that sense of it. And as the experience intensifies, and some of you who might have been practicing this for a while might have had, had the experience, the boundary between yourself and other can fall away. In, the, in those moments, the sense of there's a me in here and there's a world out there dissolves. The feel, that feeling is so wonderful and radiant, it does seem like that there is a radiance just emanating everywhere. Sometimes it feels, it feels like you're, you're taken, taken in some way. Everything you're clutching onto and holding onto in greater or lesser extent somehow releases. And in those moments, whether you're doing regular Vipassana practice or loving kindness practice, Sometimes in those moments, it feels like, I'm just taken. Taken by what? Present moment? Nature? God? The absolute? Ultimate reality? Emptiness? In any of those moments, in those moments, we experience the mystery. And this path of loving kindness can be pleasant. Now, oftentimes, not so much in the beginning. I didn't even like it when, I, when it was first introduced to me years ago. I just didn't seem to fit. But now, uh, now it's just so sweet. I love it. it. Took some time. But when it ripens for you, it has a it has a capacity to bring you to a very profound state of freedom. There's a person in one of the group meetings today, and she said, you know, I'm feeling like the crusts are kind of falling off my heart. It was a kind of a beautiful statement of awareness and, and the process that, that she was involved in. And my experience over time is that something just begins to radiate from those quiet, deeper places that in some sense, in some way, it becomes the reference point for living a life. Well, sometimes it gets knocked off kilter, but it becomes the reference point for living a life. When there's enough mindfulness and patience and the tracing back happens, and there's an opening in that vast spaciousness, you notice that that spaciousness is always full in some way. It's a paradox. It's a kind of emptying, a full emptiness. It's always colored with, always tinged with, always infused with one or more of the felt sense of those beautiful emotions of love, compassion, joy, or peace. It kind of has different flavors. 
These are not weak sensibilities. Uh, they're not shy. They can burn really bright. And as you sit here, you can tap into them. You have the capacity for great love if you can tap into them. And it can grow into something very powerful. And sometimes, you know, we tap into them by doing certain techniques. We tap into them by just relaxing and sitting, not doing. There's an inseparability between a mind that is free and a heart that loves. They're inseparable. Krishnamurti says, the moment you have in your heart this extraordinary thing called love and feel the depth, the delight, the ecstasy of it, you will discover that for you the world is transformed. So these deeper processes, this radiance with you all the time. Your practice is really a variety of ways and non-ways to remind yourself of that radiance and to help navigate your, navigate your way home. Navigate home to that radiance on a, on a more regular basis. I'll close with a few words from Walt, Whit Walt Whitman from Song of Myself, Song of the Open Road. Pausing, searching, receiving, contemplating. Gently but with undeniable will, divesting myself of the holds that would hold me. I inhale great drafts of space. The east and the west are mine, and the north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. So let's just sit together for just a moment. Like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I too quietly turn clear and transparent. Thanks for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.